beginning at Joshua chapter 21, verse 1. Then came near the heads of the fathers of the Levites unto Eleazar the priest, and unto Joshua the son of Nun, and unto the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. And they spake unto them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded by the hand of Moses to give us cities to dwell in, with the suburbs thereof for our cattle. And the children of Israel gave unto the Levites out of their inheritance, at the commandment of the Lord, these cities and their suburbs. And the lot came out for the families of the Kohathites. And the children of Aaron, the priest, which were of the Levites, had by lot out of the tribe of Judah, and out of the tribe of Simeon, and out of the tribe of Benjamin, thirteen cities. And the rest of the children of Kohath had, by the lot out of the families of the tribe of Ephraim, and out of the tribe of Dan, and out of, ha- out of the half-tribe of Manasseh, ten cities. Then to verse uh, 43. And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about, according to all that he sware unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. In chapter 22. Then Joshua called the Reubenites and the Gadites and half the tribe of Manasseh and said unto them, Ye have kept all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. Ye have not left your brethren these many days unto this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God hath given rest unto your brethren as he promised them. Therefore now return ye, and get you unto your tents and unto the land of your possession, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you on the other side of Jordan." But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cleave unto him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went into their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh Moses had given possession in Bashan, But unto the other half thereof, Josh gave Joshua among their brethren on this side of Jordan westward. And when Joshua sent them away also unto their tents, then he blessed them, and spake unto them, saying, Return with much riches unto your tents, and with very much cattle, with silver and with gold, and with brass and with iron, and with very much raiment. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren." And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel out of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go unto the land of the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, whereof they were possessed, according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Canaan. 
And when they came into the borders of Jordan that are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, a great altar to see to. And the children of Israel heard, saying, Behold, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar over against the land of Canaan in the borders of the Jordan at the passage of the children of Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh to go up to war against them. And the children of Israel sent unto the children of Reuben and to the children of Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten princes, of each chief house a prince throughout all the tribes of Israel. And each one was an head of the house of their fathers among the thousands of Israel. And they came unto the children of Reuben, and to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, unto the land of Gilead, and they spake with them, saying, Thus saith the whole congregation of the Lord, What trespass is this that ye have committed against the Lord God of, against the God of Israel, to turn away this day from, the follow, from following the Lord, in that ye've builded you an altar, that ye might rebel this day against the Lord? Is the iniquity of Peor too little for us, from which we are not cleansed until this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord? But that ye must, but that ye must turn away this day from following the Lord. And will it be, seeing ye rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be wroth with the whole congregation of Israel? Notwithstanding, if the land of your possession be unclean, then pass ye over unto the land of the possession of the Lord, wherein the Lord's tabernacle dwelleth, and take possession among us. But rebel not against the Lord, nor rebel against us in building you an altar beside the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel? And that man perished not alone in his iniquity. Then the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said unto the heads of the thousands of Israel, the Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth, and Israel he shall know, if it be in rebellion or if, it, or if in transgression against the Lord. Save us not this day. That we have built us an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer thereon burnt offering or meat offering, or if to offer peace offerings thereon, let the Lord himself require it. And if we have not rather done it for fear of this thing, saying, In time to come your children might speak unto our children, saying, What have ye to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us and you. Ye children of Reuben and children of Gad, ye have no part in the Lord. So shall your children make our children cease from fearing the Lord. Therefore we said, Let us now prepare to build us an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between us and you, and our generations after us, 
that we might do the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings, that your children may not say to our children in time to come, ye have no part in the Lord. Therefore, said we, that it shall be when they should so say to us or to our generation in time to come, that we may say again, Behold the pattern of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between us and you. God forbid that we should rebel against the Lord and turn this day from following the Lord to build an altar for burnt offerings, for meat offerings, or for sacrifices beside the altar of the Lord our God that is before his tabernacle. And when Phineas the priest and the princes of the congregation and heads of the thousands of Israel, which were with him, heard the words of the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the children of Manasseh, spake, it pleased them. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said unto the children of Reuben and to the children of Gad and to the children of Manasseh, this day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because ye have not committed this trespass against the Lord. Now ye have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the princes, returned from the children of Reuben and from the children of Gad, out of the land of Gilead, into the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel, and brought them word again. And the thing pleased the children of Israel, and the children of Israel blessed God, and did not intend to go up against them in battle to destroy the land wherein the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar Ed, for it shall be a witness between us that the Lord is God. Thank you, JP. So you can continue to have your Bibles open to those two chapters. I usually don't do, uh, a little bit, do chapters, uh, two chapters at once, but... Uh, We'll highlight some of these um, things that are happening in these chapters this morning. So we've seen that the writer of Joshua has spent a considerable amount of time, actually since chapter 13, about the allocation of the lands of these tribes, where they would live and where they would settle. And the two and a half tribes, as we see much of chapter 22, is about... Remember that although all these geographical areas might not be the most upbuilding Bible reading... It was a massive encouragement for them, and I think I've said that before, but it was for them the Lord's hand, the Lord's providence, how he had guided his people, and how he fulfilled his word and promise. There might be many mundane things in your life that are a great blessing, and if they would be missing, you would notice, and you would plead the Lord for them, and you'd be thankful for them. Chapter 21 is about the division of the land for the tribe of Levi. And they, as we have briefly looked at in other chapters, were not getting an allocation like the other tribes, as, as the others did. And the reason for this, and we have to go back a little bit in history for Levi, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 34, some 400 plus years before. There in that chapter, we find that one of the men of Shechem, a neighbor to Jacob defiled or likely raped his daughter Dinah. Well, the sons of 
Jacob were dismayed and upset that this had happened. The Israelites were not to to marry these people, and um, and uh, the father of this this man that had done this thing had uh, proposed that these tribes would marry one another, that they would trade with one another, that they would uh, swap their daughters and sons and so on, and be one people. Of course, which was an unbiblical proposal. But uh, in short, so they did. Uh, or, uh, sorry, and the sons of Jacob agreed to this. And they said, but you have to get circumcised. All these men have to get circumcised. Then and only then would they agree to this arrangement. Well, in short, so they did. And on the third day, when the guys were most sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Levi and Simeon, came and slaughtered these guys. They killed them. Even though many of them had nothing to do with the ordeal, they were slain by these two brothers. Now, Jacob was greatly displeased about this, and he had told them so. He said, you've made me to stink among the nation and my neighbors. It's an interesting account, and you can read the full account there in Genesis chapter 34. Now, later on, and we've looked at these sons individually a few years ago, Jacob on his deathbed, he gave each of his son a blessing. He goes through each one of them. With some of them, he remembers something good. With some of them, he remembers their sin. It's sort of a word of condemnation or perhaps a warning. And uh, it, he reminds them of the sin they had done in their youth. You can imagine the scene. The sons are waiting around the deathbed of old dying Jacob. And they would hear what their father had to say about them and what would happen to them in the future. What would their life be like? Genesis 49, verse 5 to 7 the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, come up, and here's what he says about them. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine honor, be thou not united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So here's the origin that they would not have a specific piece of land as the other tribes did. Simeon had a bit of a piece of land, but it was surrounded, kind of an enclave in Judah, surrounded by Judah, a small, very small portion. Now their anger was cursed by Jacob. Harsh words were spoken to both of them. Yet Levi became very highly favored among the nation, as we know. And it was said, probably the most favorable portion. The Lord was their portion. Why was this? Well, Levi did not always stay this way. And he showed a much more exemplary way, example later on in Israel's history. In Exodus 32, we have that famous incident of the golden calf where all the tribes participated in the worship of the golden calf that Aaron helped make as well. Remember, they brought all the, the gold and silver, and it says, out popped the calf. Of course, Aaron was at fault at this as well, except one tribe, and it was the tribe of Levi. They not only did not participate in this, but they dared to go against the majority, and later they had the difficult task 
of killing those who had participated in this. Exodus 32, 27. And he said unto them, the Levites, Thus said the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbors. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses. So from then on, we would see that this tribe would become priests. They would help with all the sacrifices and all the service. And not only that, Moses had also commanded them that they would teach the Israelites the law and the judgment and the statutes of the Lord. Deuteronomy 33.10. So the Lord did not redact what Jacob had told them, but it became a blessing. He had turned it into a blessing for Levi. And what an encouragement for us. Whatever our reputation was before we came to faith, or whatever the reputation was of our family, or previous actions or sins, the Lord can make a new creature out of us. He can turn our sorrow into dancing and set at liberty those that were captives. And he can bind the brokenhearted. He can make what was black white again, as we see here with this tribe. Some way that is every believer, isn't it? Who is now a partaker of the priesthood of believers in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Who has been cleansed by his blood. He is a new creature and old things are passed away. So that is briefly the history of Levi. Now in this chapter 21, we see that they also come before Joshua and Eliezer the priest. For what was promised to them. Again, we have seen this example uh, right in the beginning of the division of the land where Caleb did this as well. He came for his claim. In the verses 1 to 3, we see Joshua claiming the cities by faith of what God had promised through Moses. They're going back on what God had said. They're using his word. Now, encouraging this is when we pray for things. Especially spiritual things, especially spiritual growth. James says in James 1 to 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given unto him. Similarly, if we ask for those things, we're commanded to have more faith, more love, more patience, perhaps. The Lord will answer those, since they are the fruits that are expected of us. Or think of the expansion of the gospel in this world. So we can pray for what the Lord has already promised for us. In verses 4 to 8 we see those cities are determined by lot. So no one can complain about this or say well there was corruption there. Someone picked it for them. They are cities, 48 of them and they are all throughout the nation. No one would ever be far from a Levite and would so get familiar with his word. And it is no surprise that all these, six of these cities are the cities of refuge which we spoke about last time. Keep in mind that the Levite had a, uh, was set apart for that tabernacle work, later the work in the temple, and that the Levites also had to teach all these people the word of God and much like we see in the New Testament times, um, 
the church uses faithful ministers for spreading the word of God and so teach the people the full counsel of God. In special times and in seasons, they would return, uh, they would take turns in serving in the temple, and then they would go back home again and teach the word. They would receive the cities and their suburbs. We didn't read all of those, but you can read those at home. They would get their suburbs as well. They could grow a little bit of food and some um, cattle perhaps, but overall they were supported by the tithe that the nation, the law had laid it down that the Israelites were to give a tithe from what they had or what they made, the income they made. And also they would eat leftovers from the burnt offerings. This way they would never become large landowners or cattle ranchers or business tycoons. They were not entangled in the world that way, but they would keep their eyes on the service of God. Elsewhere it was said that God was their inheritance. They had that closed vision and that view of God of all his works and ways that embody the work in the tabernacle and all the riches that it stood for. A practical point from this chapter that we see in the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians 9, to pay for those that labor in the gospel. And the whole chapter is about that. I'll just highlight a few verses. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things, this is 1 Corinthians 9, 13, live by the finger of the temple, and they which wait at the altar, altar are partakers with that altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Similarly, in Galatians 6, verse 6, it said, let him that is taught in the word communicate or share with him who teaches in all good things. As believers, it is our duty to support the work of the local church, missionaries, Bible societies, to enable them to be free from the cares of this world and to do the work that are called for and that the Lord has gifted them. Also, 1 Timothy 5 18, it says, For the scripture said, going back to the Old Testament, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treaded out the corn, and the, the laborer is worthy of his reward. As the church in the Old Testament cared for the Levites, so are we to be generous to those that likewise minister the word. It is good from time to time to review your giving, but also the motive that is in heart when you give. Continuing on in 1 Corinthians 9, it says, But I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according to his purpose, as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. He loves those that part with their money and with their goods willingly, who take delight in doing so and to see what it does for others. The giver whose hand is not only open, but also his heart. His hand doesn't need to be opened with a crowbar to give to the Lord, but he is rich in his heart and his hand 
opens willingly. He also sees that it is an eternal value and investment as he gives to the Lord only what has been given to him by the Lord in the first place. As opposed to him that it gives totally out of obligation, but not from a heart of love to God and men. Where the thought of giving is difficult. Like the opening of a wallet, the departing of a bill is hard to see, like a friend that is moving forever. Giving, we give, it helps us to live by faith, to remind us who we are and where we come from, that we are not our own, that everything we have is from the Lord. <clears throat> How is your giving? Does your giving reflect what great price you have been bought with and that where you have been rescued from? Is it guided by the word of God? Is it sacrificial? Is it systematic? And above all, is it from the heart? The Levite also is a picture of all of us in one sense that they were sojourners. And this word is used in Deuteronomy 18 verse 6. They had no lasting roots, <clears throat> no large businesses. They're often on the move. The cities were sometimes quite small. And it's a reminder of that fleeting life that we all have. In a sense, we all are rootless in our life here on earth. <clears throat> and that we always should say, we do this if the Lord wills. We do this or that. And that we groan that our body might be finally be redeemed completely. We have no lasting city here, but we look for that eternal one. Lastly, in these three verses in chapter 21, we see the heart of this whole book, basically, of Joshua. It is about the faithfulness and the steadfastness and the trustworthiness of God. The writer, almost in a doxology, reminds the reader about what the Lord has given them and how he had sworn this to the fathers ages ago. When Abraham was promised this, all he ever had was a piece of land where Sarah was buried and that he had bought with his own money. And how unlikely it would have been for an Israelite as he was working in Egypt, making bricks, to even imagine that one day they would be free. One day they would be in their own land. Verse 44, again, the writer reminds us that this was beforehand sworn unto our fathers and that the rest from all the enemies would come and that no good thing the Lord had failed, that he had promised had failed to come to pass. Truly he was that founder of every blessing, bringing forth streams of mercies never ceasing and he could look, they could look back at that now as they're all moving into their own places. It is a reminder to us as well that one day all the scoffers and all the mockers, the persecutors, the apostate Christianity will be defeated and that perfect rest will come. These last verses reminds us that when Paul 
looks back at history in Romans 11.33. And he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed again to him again. For of him and through him. And to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. The Lord used all these men that we've read about. Joshua, Eliezer, Moses, and the different tribes and so on. But in it and through it and above it, it was his guiding hand that made it all come to pass. Yes, obedience was needed, but it was his work. And just like he has done in church history, isn't it? Many great men are used by the Lord and he raises them up. But that true builder is the Lord Jesus. So let us not then rely on our skill or courage or talents our orthodoxy or methods but ever seek to be dependent on the Lord Jesus and him alone who gives power unto us that him only in the end would be praised and honored so in chapter 22 we arrive at the last section of the book of Joshua here we see in this chapter and the following chapters, a few farewells that Joshua is, is uh, commencing and speaking to these, these tribesmen. In his first section in chapter 22, verse 1 to 9, we see Joshua saying farewell to those two and a half tribes that had land on the east side of Jordan. You, remind, you might be recalling that Gad and Reuben and the half tribe of Manasseh had requested that they could have their portion, not in the original promised land, but across eastward of the Jordan River that was now hugging between them and Canaan. And Joshua had agreed to this. Only if they, if their fighting men would still join them in the fight and clear out the enemies until all the land was conquered. Moses and the Lord had commanded that this was a group effort and that no tribe could excuse himself from the work to be done. And now these battles are over. The two and a half tribes are ready to be sent home, back to their families, who are already settled there for four to seven years east of Jordan. It's kind of a time of demobilization, you could say, as all these tribes are going home. And Joshua, as a good army leader and shepherd to his people, calls them and commends them, compliments them for their effort. And he said, as it were, well done, thou good and faithful servant. In verse 4, 2 and 3, he points out how they had obeyed Moses and Joshua. And how the, those men of God that were both directed from his law and into the true worship of God. They had not left their brethren alone to fight, fight for themselves, but they stayed there until all the work was done. And they had showed a tremendous amount of brotherly kindness, a kindness of spirit and endurance, and stayed in the heat and the length of the battle. You can imagine, perhaps, after a few years of fighting, 
And being away from your family, your elderly parents, you might be tempted to kind of sneak back over the Jordan and say, well, it's good enough. Let's go pack our bags and go home to our wives and to our children. They showed a marvelous example of service, of loyalty, and running a race until the end. These tribes gave themselves, they gave the very best of themselves and are an example of what the New Testament often calls us to do, to be filled with love and good works. Good example for us, even when it gets hard to stick with it, to be diligent in all that the Lord has commanded. So Joshua, in verse 4, tells them, no doubt on a joyous occasion, as they are going back, that the war is over, and they can enter into that land that they were promised. And as here, once again, you see Joshua saying, as the Lord has promised. He's always reminding them that it is the Lord that has done all these things. He is the ultimate promise keeper. And all that has happened in the last seven to five to seven years was by the divine help of God. Joshua is not merely interested in outward obedience as he sends them away, but also inward from the heart with a true love to God. Look at verse 5. And as they, they go, he reminds them as an aging father to keep the law of God, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to cleave unto him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Joshua knew as he looked back at the history of Israel, that half-hearted obedience got him into many a trouble. It would lead him into many a sinful situation. And how prone we and they, they had been when it came to that. And they had seen terrible results. In that verse, we see the, the sweetness of this old man. He will not let his people go without telling them again what is important. And he stresses a heartfelt, experimental faith. For without it, we will fall. And Joshua knew that. He blessed them, he prayed for them, and he bid them farewell. And then in verse 8, we see as they went home, they would take some of the loot, the, 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 the loot that they had conquered from the enemies. They would take it home, and he commands them to share it with those that stayed back home. They received this only after the work was done. After all the hard work was put in, they would enjoy those treasures that the Lord had given them. In verse 10 to 20, we all of a sudden see a rather sudden rise of a major conflict, almost a civil war even. So from a peaceful departing, uh, great compliments as they left, it was quite the contrast that we see here. As soon as these two and a half tribes leave Canaan, they build an altar close to the same spot where they initially had crossed the Jordan all those years ago. It is said to be a great altar. One you could lightly see from miles away from each side of the Jordan, and it was something to behold. Now, if you remember in the earlier chapters, in almost every one of them, there was something of a stone memorial set up. This is about the eighth time we see a stone memorial put up. 
Sometimes there was a grave, like remember Achan and his family, a heap of stones. Sometimes there was the stones of the city walls or the, st- or the, the tablets where the law was written on. So they did something that they had grown familiar with, something they could see in a, in a reminder in stone. Now, the building of this altar, and it was probably somewhat at fault in their part, came out of nowhere. Rather spontaneous. They, don't know, they didn't say anything to Joshua or the high priest or the rest of Israel. And this gave rise to a great misunderstanding and unrest. We see that early reaction of the rest of the tribes of Israel, verse 11 and 12. And in 12 it says, When the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh to go up to war against them. They gathered themselves together once again. This time it was not to fight the Canaanites or the Philistines or the Moabites, but against their brothers. How quickly things had changed. But before it comes to that, thankfully, a delegation is sent, one prince from each of the tribes, and Phineas goes with him. He's the son of the high priest. And to send them a strong rebuke. You'll notice that Joshua is no longer in the picture in this account. He is aging and he's almost dying, actually, in the next few chapters. So Joshua is no longer in the picture here. Now, why this strong response of the Western tribes? Why this civil war threats? Why the sending of Phineas, the son of the high priest? Well, in this reaction, we actually see a strong stance against error and apostasy, even though, in the end, it would come down to a rash decision and some misunderstanding done in an unwise way, it shows that they were very eager to stand for what was right. You see, Israel had been told that there would only be one altar. They couldn't be like the Canaanites that had altars all over the place, but that the Lord would appoint a place. Deuteronomy 12, verse 11. Then shall, be, then shall there be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall ye bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your heave offering <coughs> of your hand, and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord. Take heed to yourself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest, but in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes. So they were warned that they could just not willy-nilly do their own thing, find their own way of worship, but only in the place that the Lord had appointed them. So naturally, these Western tribes are very concerned. They're concerned, as we see in their response, that those are establishing their own system of worship outside the will and the law of God. Look in the text of the strong words that they use for 16 trespass, you've trespassed against the Lord. You're rebelling against him, they say. In verse 17, they recall what happened to the Israelites in their journey out of Egypt. Numbers 23, the daughters of, they had gone after the daughters of Moab. As usually happens, one sin begets another one, and they also had worshipped themselves to the God 
of Moab, Baal. And that event killed 24,000 people. So they're doing a great thing. They're recalling the judgment of old. They're concerned about the purity of worship. And how in that day the wrath of God was against them. They've really learned something. Phineas was there too at that event in Numbers 24. And he was the one that stayed the plague. He had killed a woman and a man in their tent with his javelin. So you can understand that the bringing of Phineas... Uh, meant that this was a serious situation. And again in verse 18 he tells them, unless you turn from this, tomorrow God's wrath will once again be upon us, upon the whole congregation. And you see their love for truth and their love for God in verse 19, also the love for the two and a half tribes, they say in essence, if this land is unclean for you, come over and dwell with us. But stop your rebellion against God by making this altar. And then if they still not get it, they are reminding them of what happened a few years back with Achan. When Achan died, but he did not die alone, did he? he some soldiers died in that battle because they lost it at first. And his family members were stoned to death. So they're reminding him, them, of all that had happened in the past. It was important of how they worshipped. They knew they could not just make up their own rules and their own ways. Calvin comments on this section in a nice way. And he said, here then we have an illustrious display of piety teaching us that if we see the pure worship of God corrupted, we must be strenuous to the utmost of our ability in clearing it. So you see, there's a lot of good things in how these Western tribes react to this event. And we can learn from them. They had a love for God. They had a love for fellow men. They had a fear of offending a holy God. They had an evangelical zeal to warning their brothers in the danger that they would be in if they continued. And they called them to come back to the word of God. They took time to inquire and to speak to them about it. They are in fact doing what Cain did not do. They are their brother's keepers. They're looking out for them. Philippians 2.4, Paul writes, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Sometimes we can use some of this from time to time, isn't it? Where we see friends or fellow believers going away that is away from the revealed word of God. We quickly sometimes leave these people instead of warning them, reminding them of the word of God using examples from the word of God, what happens if we turn into our own way. But we also see some actions that must be cautioned in this scenario and how they went about it. They really did assume that they had a wrong motive and that they were doing was wicked. Paul, in that great chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, about charity, love, he says, love thinketh no evil. 
Matthew Henry comments on that and he says, it will hardly think about thinking or not evil of one another. He said, it will hardly give into an ill opinion of another. And it will do it with regret and reluctance when the evidence cannot be resisted. Hence, it will never be forward to suspect ill and reason itself into a bad opinion upon mere appearances, nor gives way to suspicion if there isn't any. It will not make the worst construction of things, but put the best face on it so that it is judged correctly. And here we see this with these two tribes. They were quite certain that these two and a half tribes had done a great evil. They are judged quite harshly, even to the point of getting an army ready. They are judged the motives of the heart of these guys. Even though, just very recently, they had stayed with them, they had fought with them, they had obeyed Joshua and Moses, as we saw earlier. How careful do we need to be to judge motives, isn't it? To spread stories that are not right, that we, are, that we have not inquired about with the person involved. And when we do, we ought to do it with great caution and charity. How cautious do we need to be when we accuse someone of things they did or ascribe motives or hint at motives that you think they have when they have not? Obviously, some things are obvious, clearly wrong and unbiblical. In those cases, we need to be bold. But sometimes, we need to hear the other person out and see if there's another side to it, as we clearly see here. And if we do that, if our heart is terrible like that, we would be saved out of many of a trouble and needless hurt to one another. I was asking my wife last night if there's any cases that I can, we can remember of how I did that to her sometimes. I know I have. You know, you go like, oh, why did you do this for? You know, you've got a little sermon ready, but then you find out there was actually a very good motive behind it. So we ought to be slow to speak and quick to hear. Well, what is the response of these two and a half tribes of this rather thunderous accusation? These brothers launched against them. Verse 22, they start by defending themselves with the creed, the Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, stating their faith in the one true God of Israel. They call upon his name, as it were, that, that what they're about to say is true. And it also shows, by the way, a great response that a soft answer turns away wrath, isn't it? But grievous words stir up anger. They honor they answer honestly and with kindness. They could have, it could have ignited into a further, well, what do you think I am, with further harsh and sharp words and could have escalated the situation. And it would have no doubt been very hurtful for them that their brethren thought that this was the case. So we see that they're slowly, slow to speak and do not escalate this encounter. And from the start, they say, if, if, if it's rebellion on our part, let us not be saved this day, but let your armies be upon us, and let God indeed judge our sin. 
they are alarmed at the thought that they would do this, or that they thought they would do this, and that such a commotion was stirred up in the situation. Well, what was their aim? All they wanted to do to set up a reminder for future generations that the two, that the nine and a half tribes across the river could see that the people on the east side of the Jordan were belonging to the one nation of Israel. It was meant to prevent infidelity, not as the western tribes suggested a sure sign of infidelity. It was built to prevent apostasy and disunity and the forgetting of God, not the start of it. It was built with good intentions. The River Jordan was a steep uh, river and uh, it was naturally dividing the land uh, quite, quite nicely and the eastern tribes were concerned that one day others might say on the eastern side, on the western side, this is the promised land. The people down there, they don't belong to us. They were worried about their future offspring, their children. And they are rather appalled of the thought that they would rebel against God and that they would build a competing altar of the one by the tabernacle. Sure, they built a copy. Probably wasn't the wisest decision. They probably should have informed them a little better here. But it would remind them of the one true altar. This one was never set up for sacrifices of any kind. We see that response that a crisis is averted. And when Phineas heard this, the writer said it pleased him. And it's probably a, an understatement that war was avoided. Phineas probably thought of the words spoken would have been a bit harsh and in haste. And with that, verse 32, they were delivered, the Lord delivered the children of Israel out of his hand, meaning that there was no cause for the Lord to be angry at them. A civil war was diverted, and they went back across the Jordan with the good news. War was so avoided. They are, and they were still one people, united to live for the honor of God. The altar that was built was by both parties now seen, seen as a witness to the Lord, that he is God, same as we exclaim, all Christians united that the Lord Jesus is Lord. And at verse 31, and we'll close with this, Phineas is very relieved and he says, this day we perceive that the Lord is among us because you have not committed the trespass against the Lord. <clears throat> Again, Calvin says on this verse, this is to be carefully observed for we are able to infer from it that we never revolt from God or fall off into impiety unless he abandon us and gives us up and thus abandoned to a reprobate mind. All idolatry therefore shows that God has previously been alienated and it about to punish us by inflicting blindness. Meanwhile, we must hold, <clears throat> sorry, meanwhile, we, we must hold that we preserve impiety only so far as the Lord is present with us and as he sustains us by his hand and by the agent of his spirit. 
So it was the mercy of God, a token of him being amongst them and us, even here this morning as we read in Psalm 33, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. The pure, pure worship of the triune God. And only so as it is directed by the word of God. Where there is unity, there is a hearty thanksgiving to God as we see here. How zealous, watchful ought we to walk. Lest we pollute the worship of God in the church, in our home. It would sadly not be very long for Israel that they would fall headlong into idolatry, thus showing our constant need to be close to him who loved us and who gave himself for us, to flee from idols and only cling to him. Let us pray that we are preserved from polluted worship practices in our heart and in our doing. And that we, from the heart, would worship our triune God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness in giving it to us, for preserving it for us. Father, we pray that indeed we would worship the Lord in purity, in a heartfelt desire, Father. Make us people that are always strongly aware of our proneness to wonder, Lord, and that we would set up our own things, wonder from your word. Father, we thank you that you will never forsake your church. What you have started to build, you'll never forsake it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But Lord, would you help us, help us to be dependent on you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who washed us and cleanse us from our sin. Father, if anyone here this morning is outside of him, he's never gone to that great altar of the cross, Lord, where the Lord Jesus took upon sin for his people and pleaded with him to save him, Lord, that he would do so now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.